we tend to make a lot of assumptions in life. You might assume that Tim and I coordinated our blue plaid shirts for today, but we didn't, I promise. Um, we got a little bit of teasing for that earlier. So, um, But we do make assumptions. If you've ever seen the movie Once or are familiar with that song from the soundtrack, the song actually won an Oscar for best, uh, best song in 2008. I made some assumptions about how that movie was going to end. And we kind of do that, don't we? We kind of think, okay, I know where the storyline is going. But I wasn't necessarily right about that. We kind of like to put everything in a tidy little box and make it predictable because it's comfortable for us. And I, and I like a plot twist in my movies, but in real life, not so much. We're right in the middle of a series that we're calling Seriously? Because Jesus said some things and did some things that people were like, hmm, I'm not sure I understand what's going on here, and I'm not sure why he would have said that. And so for us, over the next few weeks, we've been, or last few weeks, we've been looking at some of the strange things that he said. And today we're going to look at how our assumptions can hold us back from having the best life we can have, the one that's centered on Jesus. But before we get too far into that, will you guys pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to come here together and worship you. I pray that the things that I've thought and studied and prepared for today will be pleasing to you, and I pray that the words that I say will be heard and understood. I pray that those things would be pleasing to you as well. I pray that as we go through our days, Lord, that we will always think of how we can glorify you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Now, in this passage, we find Jesus saying probably the grossest thing he's going to say in the Gospel of John, at least. And the Gospel of John is the book that we'll be looking at today. And Tim's been talking, Pastor Tim's talked last couple of weeks about finding context. You know, why would Jesus say something like this? And so he's going to say something really gross, and I'm going to go ahead and kind of throw it out there because he tells the crowd that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And for us, we take the Lord's Supper, we take communion, we do that regularly, so we kind of understand that that was a metaphor. But if you're familiar with the gospel, he hadn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. So this whole crowd of people was looking at this going, I'm not sure I get what you're getting at here, uh, Jesus. So, but in this chapter, in chapter 6, if you want to follow along, we can, um, we're going to put some of the passages up on the screen. Um, but Jesus had just got finished feeding 5,000 people, and he just had a little bit of food, and so there was this miracle that occurred where he was able to feed these 5,000 plus people. And they're like, oh, this is pretty good. I like free food. And if he can do this all the time, I think we should maybe make this guy our king instead of that Herod guy. And so they want to make him king. And Jesus is like, I don't want, he doesn't want anything to do with that. He, he doesn't have anything to do with that, that agenda. He had a different kind of meal and a different kind of life in plan for them, a better kind of life. Besides, he wouldn't be the kind of king that they were looking for. They were anticipating that there would some, be somebody that returned, somebody like King David who would bring prosperity, like a warrior, somebody like that. But they also thought, well, maybe it could be somebody like Moses who would lead them out from under the Roman oppression that they're under right then because he had done that and he'd taken them out of Egypt. So maybe they'll find somebody like that. And they were anticipating that whoever was coming would be like that. But Jesus didn't want to have anything to do with those assumptions they were making. And he had something better in mind, something that would be everlasting for them. But they also made other assumptions, though. For so long, their leaders had told them, if they follow the law and the prophets, if they, if they do what's in the Hebrew scripture, then 
things will go well for them, they'll be prosperous, and everything will turn out the way they wanted to, and they'll actually eventually have this Messiah come to save them from whatever they needed to be saved from. And the crowd may have been looking for a new rule, or they may have been looking for that Messiah. However, Jesus tells them not to look for that or labor for that or work for something that spoils, but let me show you this. And so in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus tells them the only thing they need to do is believe in God and the one that he sent. See, even though he said that, they're like, we still want a sign. Because they wanted a sign to bolster their belief. And then they tell Jesus, they're like, well, our ancestors, they ate the manna from heaven that Moses gave us in the wilderness. And Jesus is like, well, actually, that wasn't Moses that did that. That was my dad, and I'm here to give you a better kind of bread. At that point, the crowd was all in. They're like, well, okay, Jesus, give us this bread all the time. We want that. We want that. Give that to us, because that sounds nice. I get a meal every day. But that obviously wasn't what he was talking about. They weren't picking up on that just yet. This bread that he was offering was really as available to us as our next meal. And Dallas Willard talks about this bread and the life that Jesus gives in this way. He says it emphasizes the direct availability of God to nourish, sustain, and renew the soul. It is a testimony to the reality of another world from which Jesus and his Father perpetually intermingle their lives with ours. When I was a kid, we took a family trip to Chicago. And it was awesome because we went and saw all the cool museums. We went up in the Sears Tower, which is now the Williams Tower. But at the time, I think it was the tallest building in the world. You can look out. They had it set up to where here's the wall, but there is glass out here. So you can go like this. And it was pretty, it was awesome. But we, I was like eight years old, and I remember that trip. And one of the things I remember the most about the trip is when we went to a fancy dinner at a revolving restaurant at the top of the Holiday Inn. And I know for you guys that are quite younger than me, Holiday Inn Express is nothing. But that's the Holiday Inn. That's a picture back from the 60s. This was in the 70s that I went. But um, that's the little revolving deal at the top of there. And it was great, and it was really fancy to a kid like me. I know they have revolving restaurants like at the top of Towers now, and it's like, really high dollar food that tastes horrible. But this was amazing because they had linen tablecloths, and I'm sure I didn't wear like a t-shirt and shorts for this. I don't remember that part, but I do remember them kind of rotating around real slow and looking out over Lake Michigan. You could see it in there and all the tall buildings around there. And for an eight-year-old kid, it was fancy and high class. And I ordered the beef stroganoff all right? My mom made a version of beef stroganoff like every other week, and I loved it. It was like almost like hamburger helper, but not because she had her own formula, okay? Theirs was good, and I love my mom, and hers was good. I'm not going to make a comparison. Two different things, all right? My little sister, who was six at the time, she had the frog legs. I don't know if anybody's had a frog leg before or not, but it was a delicacy. My dad ordered it too. Great. It was fun. Whatever. I tried it. It was good. I haven't had it since. So, but, but as much as I enjoyed that meal and had fun doing that and had that experience, you know what? The next morning, I felt like I needed to eat breakfast again, and then lunch, and then dinner after that. You see, Jesus knows that these bellies, they'll never be fully satisfied. 
But he's offering a different kind of satisfaction, a satisfaction that doesn't go away. It's this bread of life that he's offering to us. It's that sense that I'm loved, that I don't have to prove anything, and that um, instead of this reputation that I try to always polish, I don't have to worry about that anymore because I'm in him, and he cares about me, and he loves me. That goes for you guys, too. I won't just exclude you in that. Then Jesus goes on to tell the crowd that he came down from heaven to do his Father's will. And his, fa- his, his Father's will is that for everybody who believes in him will have this everlasting life, this eternal life, a life that's forever connected with God. Our belief in Jesus is like this. If we're obedient to him and we do the things that he says, so it's obedience and action. So if we do the things that he said and do the things that he did, then we're going to have this kind of divine, everlasting life that he desires for us. Uh, Jesus says in another place, if you put my words into actions, then you will have built a strong foundation. In other words, you'll build a good life for yourself, one where peace reigns, where love expands, and then where our contentment begins to rise. But the crowd starts to grumble. They couldn't wrap their brains around this, and were getting frustrated. In their minds, Jesus was Mary and Joseph's kid. He, he came from around the corner, not from heaven. And he's like, okay, guys, you got to quit grumbling about this one too. And then he tells them, I am from God, and God is with me, and I'm the bread of life. He also says, your fathers ate that manna, that free bread in the wilderness, and they died. In other words, Moses or David or one of your prophets could not ever offer you what I'm offering you here. Then our narrative becomes a little bit more troublesome for them. He says in this, in in verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. His listeners started arguing with each other, especially the leaders. They were very troubled by this, and they were like, how could he give his flesh to eat? And they probably didn't think that he was actually encouraging cannibalism, at least I hope not. But they didn't know what he was doing with the symbolism. Maybe they understood it, and they were angry because of it. They're troubled because, for one thing, it's gross. And for the other thing, it's like, how is he going to make his flesh available to us in this way? But he wasn't talking about that. And actually, we'll know as we kind of progress through the book of John, he's actually foretelling his future death for them on the cross. But they just didn't get it. And if they were picking up on what, they were, what he was putting down, they wouldn't have liked that anyway. Because if a Messiah or a new king or a new leader was going to come and lead them, he obviously wouldn't have to die to fulfill and accomplish their agenda. But in spite of the gross-out factor, Jesus goes ahead and he just doubles down. He says in verse 53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They might have known he wasn't being literal, but he was definitely crossing a line for them. Because for a good Jew at that time, you wouldn't have drank blood, and you also wouldn't have eaten meat with the blood in it. So no rare or medium rare steaks either. Because for them, if they did that, that would be a sin. It would be unclean. Now, a pagan might have done that, but not a good Jew, not a good Hebrew. And so they can't kind of bend to that kind of unrighteous living that Jesus might be calling them into. So even this line, if it's just a metaphor that Jesus has us cross, he's pushing us in a direction 
that the Jews weren't necessarily wanting to go to, that the people were hearing him. And what Jesus is doing with this, and many other places we find his story, he was removing lines that we're afraid to cross. Lines which are barriers or walls that we set up to kind of self-insulate and make ourselves feel good in comparison to others. Or make us feel like they're less or different or not as good as we are. But Jesus doesn't want us to worry about those lines. Because with him we'll learn to love when we abide in him and he in us. Abiding looks like starting to talk and act like Jesus Christ. We allow his message to permeate our very lives. And instead of looking for conflict or thinking the worst of others, we begin to see people the way Jesus sees them, capable of love and worthy of redemption. Abiding means he's in our thoughts, and we keep coming back to him each day for that bread, that life that he freely gives to us. When we learn to love, there's no longer any lines to worry about crossing our barriers we can't overcome. Bringing down walls is not necessarily the thing that we always like to do. Because we kind of like boundaries, we kind of like limits, we kind of like rules. It's like um, these, thing help, these things help us keep score, or if not score, maybe a tally for how we are doing compared to other people. But Jesus, um, but these things, um, these things help us keep these score. And it's similar to the people that we're talking about in this passage in that they were trying to keep score too. That's why they had set some of those boundaries up. That's why they had those limits of not eating the meat with the blood in it. See, we like to stay in our comfort zones of our friends and our relations. And still I, until I started going to, um, into the inner city to do mission work, and still I kind of cro- started crossing over near the border into Mexico or going to places where other people would say, that's really dangerous, you shouldn't do that. Until I started doing those types of things that I didn't really realize how big God was and how big God was moving in this world. I had a boundary set up for myself. But when I started doing that type of work, I started realizing that I wasn't taking Jesus into those places with me. I wasn't taking his good news into those places with me. He was already there. And all this time, I'd been missing out on what he was trying to do. See, once I did this type of work, it broke down the assumptions I'd made about other people And it taught me empathy and compassion, both here and then abroad. When we step across those lines in love, Jesus is right there with us. He's in us, and we're having a life with him. And then Jesus goes further in verse 54. He says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Then Jesus tells him again, it's not like the stuff that Moses gave his people out in the wilderness. This is the bread that allows you to live the divine kind of life that you always wanted with God. And then in verse 60, when the disciples heard that, he said, they they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The crowd who had been following Jesus around for all this time were like, huh, I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I signed up for this. So Jesus, what you're saying is, you're going to die, and there's not going to be any more free food for us? And it literally say that, but they were like, I don't know if I'm, this is what I, was, I, I wanted. 
And Jesus, Jesus says again to them with the grumbling, it's like, what, what, what's up with the grumbling? And have I somehow offended you in this? And, it said, and then he goes on to say, it's the spirit that gives life, or who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now they may have been even a little bit more confused by this. Because, well, Jesus, you just said a couple minutes ago, uh, we have to eat your flesh. And now you're saying the flesh is no help at all? Their assumption, as a, as a good Jewish community, their assumption is that they associate the physical with what God is doing and their relationship with God. And if I do all the external things or we do all the external things properly, then our relationship with God will be what it's supposed to be. And then we'll be blessed. And honestly, we often operate in that same vein. We, we think if we do all the right stuff, then God's going to bless us. But their faith was a, often a little... Their faith was, was different than that in that they understood that if they did the law properly, those who followed it the most closely and performed the rituals and customs right, they would be closest to God. And that was their assumption. But when Jesus challenges this assumption, not just in this passage, but many other places he talks about, um, they, they miss it because they find it hard to stomach. We've been taught this way for so long, and you're saying it's really this way. And it's hard for them to take it into their lives. We live in a performance-based society. We assume if we do the right things, whatever those things are, they're kind of arbitrary sometimes, right? We're good with God. But our behavior isn't what God is looking for. He has something better for us. But sometimes, again, learning those, old, those new patterns is difficult and hard for us to digest. It wasn't as if they thought the rules, that the Jewish people thought the rules were going to save them. They knew there was this relationship component to what they were after. But Jesus was offering something completely new to them. By and large, the Jewish people during Jesus' time had made assumptions about where they wanted to go, what they wanted to do, and how they wanted the history, how they wanted Israel's history to unfold. But Jesus was not going to, he was unfortunately not going to be able to allow that to happen because he had a different agenda for them. In fact, he was going to turn all those assumptions upside down. Jesus offers what we need, not necessarily what we want. If we hang in there with him, he helps us thrive. He gives us the kind of life that he wants for us. But we have to, have, we have to get rid of some of our assumptions, though. Now, I might not like to admit it, but we all make assumptions. I make assumptions. Even my dog makes assumptions. I think we need to catch up on the slides there. Even my dog makes assumptions. If, we, if you follow us on Instagram or on Facebook, there she is. Okay. You may have seen our dog, Jackie. All right. Isn't she cute? All right. She's a little clingy to my wife, Carmen. We can, we can leave her up there for a second. It's okay. She's a little clingy to my wife, Carmen. And I get that because I like hanging out with Carmen, too. However, Jackie is obsessed. And so anytime Carmen gets up, Jackie gets up. All right? Anytime, like, she thinks we're leaving the house, she'll go get in her crate. Because if Carmen's not around... I don't, I'll just go in my crate and hide. It's no big deal, right? So she assumes that she knows where Carmen is going. So Carmen might be upstairs, and she'll come downstairs. And Jackie, even if she's relaxing and chilling in her bed, which she does a lot of, she'll get up and she'll follow Carmen downstairs. And Carmen's going down the hall, and then Jackie will just skitter by her. And it's like, boop, 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 all the way down in the bedroom. But uh, if you've ever been in our house, 
Carmen might go into the kitchen, or she might go into the bathroom, and the dog will have to go, okay, where, where am I going here? But she makes these assumptions, right? She assumes she knows where Carmen is going to end up, and she thinks she has it right, but oftentimes she doesn't. I have to admit, I'm a little bit like my dog, because I make assumptions too. I, I have an assumption for how my life is supposed to turn out and how things are supposed to go for me. Um, and a lot of that's influenced by external types of triggers, things that are like me comparing myself to other people or thinking about um, what I've seen in the media or I just kind of let my world get small instead of looking at what God is trying to do. Because when I look at what God is trying to do and I decide that I want to join him in that, things will be so much better for me and I'll leave a lot of things behind that I kind of hang on to. But we have to keep our focus. Jesus would call this focus our belief. And you might remember I said earlier that belief has something to do with obedience and it has something to do with action. It has something to do with listening and doing what he says and also just hearing what he says. We have to ask ourselves, what are we looking to to make these lives the good kind of lives we're looking for? Sometimes we have to say, okay, well... If I want this divine life intermingled with God, I can't really just say, well, I've got to ensure my reputation's good or worry about what I, how I look in the community or whether my kids are behaving right or whether my pets are behaving right. None of those things brings that lasting love and confidence that Jesus Christ can bring to us. But we keep striving after them anyway. I catch myself looking for the happy ending, um, even though the story, hopefully for me, is far from over. I want the hero, who's me, to win, right? And I want the villain to lose. Not just whoever's playing the Astros, but the actual villain. Somebody who would oppress the poor or take advantage of the weak or somebody just that compulsively lies. I have in my mind how that storyline should end for them, but I don't get to write that storyline. See, just like in life as in movies, there's a, there seems to be a sequel or a continuation, and we might not like how that story ends. Often, it ends in a way that we didn't see and we don't like. Sometimes, later on, the hero returns, but then you know what? The villain does, too. We might not like how the story ends or the next episode goes. We might think that we have a better idea for how that storyline should happen. But Jesus, he gets to own the storyline. And he gets to enforce the, all those plot twists. My assumptions about fairness make it hard for me to stomach that sometimes. Because when he does a plot twist like he so often does, it makes it hard for me to stomach. I want to give you a, a few examples of that. So forgiveness for those who get, commit crimes, even commit crimes against me, I don't like that very much. Now, that doesn't delete consequences, and Jesus never really said he was getting rid of the consequence for somebody doing something wrong but he does say we have to forgive them. That's hard for us to take in. And then radical inclusiveness, which doesn't, that, that doesn't mesh with my assumption about self-righteousness and my assumptions about um, the traditions that I've held for a long time. And then actual enemy love, how can I do that? They hate me. Why would I love them? And how is that even possible? See, the followers, the people that were listening to all this kind of had, similar, had a similar disconnect because they understood that those things went against their grain as well. The same problems they had that we have were true. They 
assumed there was this insulating barrier, this self-righteousness that we can set up that would ensure that the story ended the way they wanted it to. So punishment, not forgiveness. Vengeance instead of love. Exclusion instead of inclusion. But that's a false barrier that we set up. It's a different plot line than what Jesus has in mind. There's some reasons that may have been hard for them to listen. So we find as we continue into verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away too? Now, it sounds definitely like a question, and it's got a question mark in the, in the English translation. But in the earlier, earlier passages, what, when, when they originally wrote this in Greek, there's a different nuance to that question. It's almost as if he's not even asking them a question. It's more of a, um, you're not going to leave too, are you? Or, you're not going anywhere, are you? And then Peter, who's the disciple that always is going to jump in with something to say or do, speaks on behalf of everybody. He says, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, in spite of these 12 guys' assumptions, they believe Jesus is who he says he is. They know they, if they follow him and they emulate his life, they get to be a part of that divine life with God. Jesus provides that substance, that bread of life. They'd experienced it. Their needs have been met, but more importantly, their spiritual desires and longings are being fulfilled. By this time, Jesus had collected a pretty diverse group of individuals they had had different backgrounds. They were coming from different places in life. And they all had different goals for how they wanted their lives to end up. But in Jesus, they found this Messiah that had given them true meaning for their lives and a true path to follow. I want us to note, I highlighted up there, it says, you have the, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. See, most of them grew up going to synagogue and hearing teaching over and over again passed down from generation to generation to generation. But none of the things that they had learned up till now was the life-fulfilling substance that Jesus was providing. And they knew that. His word was filling up their lives. Now, the bread of life, it can be transformative for us as well. As we learn to live in sacrificial ways the way Jesus did, then we begin to step into God's bigger story. We'll need to let go of some of those assumptions that we hold on to and instead look to Jesus in these stories. Look to Jesus in the rest of the Christian scripture and find him in our experiences with one another. And when we do that, we can, we can drop our agenda or our plot line and pick up his. And when we do, we'll begin to share in the divine life, the one that truly satisfies. Will you guys pray with me? And then we might have a couple time, a few minutes for some questions. Well, Father God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your word. Um, I just pray that you would help us to seek out you and to live that divine, everlasting life that you began so long ago. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So typically this is a time where we do some Q&A, and I reserve the right to ask you a question back if I don't know the answer to the question. So um, Tim's got a microphone back up there, so you can put your hand up. I, I put a time limit on how many, how we do this, but go. See, it's hard to see. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I've been very well trained to assume that 
I always get it, <laughs> um, that myself and the people with whom I identify always get it and kind of always know what's really happening and what the right way is and, and all that stuff. And as a consequence of that, to very much value winning. How do I practice the self-awareness to recognize when I don't know, to acknowledge when I don't know, and to look for where the story is going, where God is directing the story, and not just um, where I expect it to go? Okay. Well, is it better? Sorry. I don't know what I did. Um, hmm. Well, I think the long and short of that is probably, like, I don't know, Violet's like a year and a half old, not even that, right? And so I know as I've watched my kids grow, I know what it feels like to lose a lot more. And so I, I, it, it's part of that life experience of going, okay, I don't always lose and how, or don't always win, and how do I kind of deal with that? And I don't know if that, that answers that question very well, but a lot of what hap- helps me in my try to con- connect with Christ is, is I, again, I look, I look in, his, in the scripture, and I look what he says. I look what he says. Um, I practice disciplines. You know, I practice things that, like meditating on a passage of scripture. I pray. Um, I spend time with other people who um, are, that can, can, can share some of that load. Um, but I don't know. Winning is not, I don't know if I'm even answering that question right. But um, I, don't know if I, may, I don't know if I need to answer it right. But a lot of it's just that kind of life unfolds in front of us, and we don't get to determine how, how it unfolds. We just do what we do in the moment, and we keep that focus on believing in him and trusting that he's he's got a better thing for us. Um, That seems a little cliche, really, and it's and it's not it's not easy. You know, there's a reason why they were like, "This is a hard thing to say," and this is the reason why of those hundreds of people that might have been listening at that point just turned and walked away. pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life, that you nourish our souls. We pray that we would leave here today knowing that you're with us, that you care for us, and you have a better life in store for us than what we could even imagine grateful for your sacrifice to make that happen. It's in your name we pray.